Welcome to the Queue for Two, your podcast companion for learning all about your favorite theme park attractions. Whether listening at home or while waiting in the queue, we'll fill you in on all the information you need to get the most out of your ride experience. I'm your host, Ryan, and joining me as always is the rootin' tootin' Matthew. Today, we're talking about the history and hidden secrets behind my favorite ride in Disney's frontier land, Big Thunder Mountain Railroad. Rootin' tootin', I'm ready to ride. (laughs) Let's get some dynamite and let's get on the train. Matthew, one thing I think we should address straight out of the gates as we are entering Frontierland, I feel like some of our listeners are going to be a bit surprised by the order that we have our favorites, because I feel like Thunder Mountain is more of the thrill-seeking ride in Frontierland, and you're kind of building your reputation as more of the thrill-seeker side between the two of us. I I definitely agree there. One thing that I do not like about Big Thunder Mountain is the car size. As you know, I'm a large uh, man, six foot three for all the listeners out there. So the car doesn't do well for people that have like long legs from my experience. And so I usually get cramped in that car a little bit more. Same issues that I've had with like rides like Seven Dwarves and stuff like that. So when they have rides that don't do great for tall people, and it's also a little bit rough on top of that, it definitely doesn't make for the best ride experience. I still love the ride. But that's why Splash Mountain for me, spoilers for uh, next episode, is my favorite in Frontierland. And then we all know that I'm a big animatronics fan. And so kind of shift over towards more of Splash Mountain is usually more of my speed. And I think one of the things we talked about, I mean, we both like different things about these rides. And so we wanted these two rides to be our two episodes for Frontierland. And so... Maybe I'm just speaking for me personally, but I feel like the lines in this section of the park blur more in terms of our favorites compared to others. I think the closest in comparison was probably when we were talking about Tomorrowland, because both of the ones that we talked about there are definitely my two favorites there as well. For sure. And I think the real issue is that we both wanted to talk about Mark Twain's Riverboat as our favorite part of Frontierland, but obviously that wouldn't make a very good episode. So we can't talk about Mark Twain's Riverboat. So we both had to go to our second option for sure. Oh, it's coming in a future episode, though. We're ready for that boat. (laughs) Well, welcome, everybody, to the podcast. Welcome, Matthew. Today, as we are talking about Big Thunder Mountain Railroad, what do you say we just jump right into talking about some of the history of this fantastic attraction? Let's do it. All right. So as we've learned in past episodes, I tend to be very verbose with the history of these attractions. I will say Thunder Mountains is going to be a little bit shorter. I could go more into some of the history with the Disneyland version, and we are going to touch on that here. I'm not going to blast us way far in the past like I did with Winnie the (laughs) Pooh or something similar. We're going to start a little bit closer to modern day, talking about around the opening of Magic Kingdom. So following that opening, we're going to start our story in October of 1971 which is around the time that Disney Imagineers were beginning to work on an expansion for Frontierland in the Magic Kingdom that at the time they were calling Thunder Mesa, which was supposed to be this enormous constructed plateau that was going to contain several different attractions, including a roller coaster and a river rapids ride. One of the biggest attractions in this section was set up to be something called the Western River Expedition, 
which was going to be a Western-themed boat ride set to be the central attraction of this new Thunder Mesa. Matthew, we have actually talked a little bit about this attraction before. Spearheaded by Mark Davis, this was supposed to be essentially like the Western version of Pirates of the Caribbean that they were going to bring over to the Disney park in Florida. And the thoughts at that time were they weren't going to move pirates over because Florida already has so much pirates memorabilia and locations connected to pirate lore. They thought Florida wasn't going to want to have that experience. Right. Boy, were they wrong. A lot of people were saying, bring pirates to Florida. (laughs) (laughs) That's what we need. More pirates. Never can have too many pirates. We need more pirates. (laughs) And so as... They started these plans for this like Western expansion with Frontierland, the Thunder Mesa. By 1973, they ended up canceling these grand plans due to combination for that high demand for a pirate's ride and also some financial issues at the time with Disney that we can talk a little bit more about as we go on from here. So with Thunder Mesa being completely canceled, There was an up-and-coming Imagineer that essentially got us the Thunder Mountain that we know today. And that Imagineer, now legendary, Tony Baxter. So Tony Baxter, he actually started off on Main Street as an ice cream scooper. And over time, he ended up kind of getting a shot to be an Imagineer and worked his way through the door. And this was kind of one of his initial projects where essentially when they were going to scrap all of Thunder Mesa, he proposed instead of getting rid of the whole project, take some of the elements from the Western River Expedition and incorporate those elements into a single roller coaster attraction, which ultimately would cost Disney a ton less money and still give them an expansion to Frontierland. So Matthew, money was a big concern at that time. Can you think of anything going on with Disney at this point in the mid-70s that would kind of be a financial drain for them? Hmm, mid-70s. You know I'm bad with dates, so I have no idea. So there's two big things, but I'll give you a hint. One of it has to do with a construction for a roller coaster that you have talked about previously on the podcast. Oh, gosh. Well, then I'm going to say Space Mountain. A hundred percent. So the construction of Space Mountain was one of the holdups on Disney World getting its Thunder Mountain or Thunder Mesa. The other one was this was around the time that they were getting started with the Epcot project. And so at this point in 1973, they hadn't even secured funding for Epcot. So they already had that big other thing going on that was going to be a huge financial drain. And so they wanted to essentially save money as much as they could at that time. As they essentially loved Tony Baxter's pitch and started to move forward with this idea for a roller coaster. Like I mentioned, they put it on hold at Disney World due to the construction of Space Mountain underway. And so construction initially started at Disneyland for this project. They started construction on Big Thunder Mountain Railroad at Disneyland in 1977, and it was on land that was going to replace a current attraction called the Mine Train Through Nature's Wonderland, also originally called the Rainbow Caverns Mine Train. Now, Matthew, is this an attraction that you've ever heard of before? 
No, I don't think so. This was completely new to me. It was one that as I started to learn a little bit more about it, I realized I had seen some clips and videos before. But since I've never been out to Disneyland myself, this wasn't one I was familiar with. Essentially, the earliest version of this attraction, Rainbow Caverns Mine Train, was Walt's original vision for this big part of Frontierland that was going to be basically an educational ride through the Old West. It operated from 1956 to 1977, and as it developed over that time, a lot of the big updates to that attraction were actually personally overseen by Walt Disney before his death. This was a big staple attraction out at Disneyland, and so great care was taken to preserve a lot of the set pieces and animal animatronics that were on that ride. So some of the animatronics, including skunks, possums, tortoises, vultures, coyotes, rattlesnakes, oh my, (laughs) are reused in the attraction at Disneyland. And In fact, they actually shipped some of those elements out to Florida to use on the Thunder Mountain in Florida as well. Like if you are familiar with the little cat on top of the big plastic cactus, that was one that was shipped out from the original ride at Disneyland out to out to Florida. Honestly, if you hadn't reminded me of the cat, I genuinely wouldn't even say that there's animatronics on this ride. I completely forgot there's anything on this ride, at least in the Disney World one. It's kind of hard to remember at first, and then I watched a ride through, and I was like, oh, yeah, there's a ton. (laughs) It's not like a central focus of the ride, I feel like, like, you know, Splash Mountains or Carousel Progress or anything like that. But yeah, so they preserved some animatronics from the original ride, and they also look to preserve the original little town of Rainbow Ridge a.k.a. the biggest little boomtown in the West, that now they converted to essentially a miniature ghost town in Big Thunder Mountain that you roll past at the end of the attraction there. Again, with Disney always reusing their stuff, we love to see it. Reuse, reduce, reuse, recycle, all the, the that jazz. And it's it's funny because they reused a lot, but there's also a big online community that talks about how so many different animatronics from the original attraction went missing and there's a lot of rumors about where they could be some say that they're stored in like a property near the horse stables where those were in the back of the disneyland property (laughs) others say that they think that when they bulldozed a lot of the land a lot of the animatronics that they didn't need just got buried and they're like under the foundation of the current thunder mountain this sounds like some five nights at freddy's stuff This is a haunted (laughs) theme park that we're going to get where animatronics come to life is what it sounds like. It's going to be like a weird animatronic pet cemetery. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Breaking through the ground at Thunder Mountain. (laughs) The ghosts of the deceased animatronics. (laughs) So Disneyland was the first one that was coming together. We'll talk about the theming around this attraction as we move forward and talk about the story. But on the initial construction, there was very little story for this attraction. Essentially, what they set up as they were building it in Disneyland was that there was a legend of gold being discovered in the nearby Big Thunder Mountain in the late 1880s, and then earthquakes and mysterious things started to happen after the Big Thunder Mining Company set up operations there. And as they moved forward, the town's population, initially a little over 2,000, decreased down to 38 as people started to move out. 
And that's the story of Big Thunder Mountain at Disneyland initially. Not a whole lot of substance to that story in the first place. Perfect. That's all you need with a high action thrill ride. They give you that little taste, that little that little <laughs> sprinkle in and let you fill in the gaps on your own. Now, as they were setting up for this ride, one of the things I did want to talk about was some of the specs, as you talked about with Space Mountain, Matthew, as we're getting into a discussion of the roller coaster. So ride engineer Bill Watkins partnered with Aero Development to make the roller coaster at Disneyland, as this company already had a lot of experience making mine train type roller coaster attractions including actually the runaway mine train at Six Flags, including the one in Georgia that you and I have been to, Matthew. That makes sense. They definitely, I like both of those rides, so that makes sense. They have a lot of the same feel. Aero Development also has a lot of credits at Disney. I'm not going to like list them all off, but a couple that would be relevant here. They also worked on the Matterhorn bobsleds, the Pirates of the Caribbean ride at Disneyland, and the Haunted Mansion at Disneyland as well. So a lot of a lot of big hitters here. Got it. The Disneyland attraction is set to be a grand total of 2,671 feet long and includes three lift hills on the finished coaster. It reaches a maximum height of 104 feet at the tip of the peak, which is about three quarters of the height of the Matterhorn. And the roller coaster itself reaches a top speed of... Matthew, you got a guess? I'm going to say... 37 miles per hour. Oh, you are so close. I think by the <laughs> Price is Right rules, you're a little over. Oh, so I would have lost it all. You lost it all, but you were very close. It was 35 miles an hour. Wow. Okay. You got that feel. It's in the it's in the right feel there. Yep. It definitely feels faster, but I think it's hard for me, and I don't know if it's hard for everybody, to really gather how fast that actually is. When you're not in a car and you're in a roller coaster and you got the wind whipping by, it seems way faster than than it actually is. And I love that about coasters. I need us to have a queue for two trip to the park. And I need video of you on the roller coasters, like doing the licking your finger, testing the airspeed, trying to <laughs> feel it and be like, I think we're moving at 34 and a half miles per hour. I'll do some research and figure out how we can measure it and turn it into a big math problem. Perfect. <laughs> Taking out like a gyroscope on the ride, <laughs> writing down measurements. I love it. That'd be great. So this was one of the first coasters to use linear induction motors to propel the carts on the track forward from their starting point without that traditional hill and chain start. Now, of course, they do have some of that incorporated with the lift hills, but this was kind of a little jump forward in roller coaster technology with the Disneyland coaster. A couple of specs that I thought were kind of fun to share as well. The Disneyland version of Big Thunder Mountain Railroad cost a whopping $16 million to complete. They used over 6,500 tons of steel, over 4,600 tons of sand, and over 4,000 gallons of paint. That's a lot of paint. Yeah, especially because... Like, I'm assuming they did it with, like, rollers and stuff, right? Or do I don't know. I don't know my timeline of paint gadgets... So maybe they had like full on spray guns back then. But even still, that's a lot of paint. They had that inspector gadget technology for all of the technicians where they had a little tube popping out of their (laughs) finger and hosing the paint onto the side. If you were to tell me that all the Imagineers were androids, I would just be like, yeah, that that tracks. (laughs) That sounds about right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, with all of those big supplies going into the Disneyland version, 
They got that one done, and in January of 1979, they moved on to construction for Thunder Mountain at the Magic Kingdom. After they overcame those hurdles that we talked about, Epcot got its funding secured in 1978, and they finished construction on Space Mountain. And so they were able to move forward with Thunder Mountain in the Magic Kingdom. Now, when they were looking to construct this coaster, they did pivot with manufacturers. This one was manufactured by a company called Vacoma. And Matthew, you mentioned this in your episode on Seven Dwarfs Mine Train. This is the company that built both of those two attractions, Thunder Mountain and Seven Dwarves. And in my research, also came across, they worked on Guardians of the Galaxy Cosmic Rewind at Disney World as well. Ooh, very excited to ride that one. I absolutely agree. I am excited to ride Guardians of the Galaxy Cosmic Rewind, and I have tried to not look up too much about that attraction because I've heard it's not one you want to have spoiled. Same, same. So Vacoma was the company that set these tracks. The track layout that they designed is roughly the same layout as the Disneyland attraction, but overall the set pieces have a lot of differences, even though the general theming is roughly the same. The track at the Disney World attraction is 2,780 feet long. The peak reaches a height of 197 feet tall and reaches a maximum speed of... Matthew, what's your guess? This time I'm going to say 36 miles per hour. It's 36 miles per hour. There we go. I figured it was a little bit faster, just a tiny smidgen faster. <laughs> they had to outdo Disneyland by one mile per hour. So they got it, got it that little bit more. Perfect. This one cost a grand total of $17 million to complete. And the biggest difference in designing the Magic Kingdom version of this coaster, this is actually the first roller coaster to be built with a computer-aided design. This was not a technology that was initially available when they were constructing the Disneyland version. And so it's actually kind of of a little bit of a benefit that the Magic Kingdom version had to wait a little bit so it could get in on that cutting edge technology to make it a little bit better. So they had the initial copy of Roller Coaster Tycoon. Got it. Sounds good. Exactly. They were running on the uh, OG beta version of Roller Coaster Tycoon. <laughs> It sounds like one of the biggest things that this did for them, and this was something that I hadn't realized about the ride, they actually built the set pieces for the ride first, and then they put the tracks down. So usually it's the other way around. Usually you build your roller coaster tracks and set all those out and then build the theming around it. Right. And essentially the reason they did this in reverse is because they had the technology to do that. And the Disney company said, no, we want to make sure the theming is perfect. We want to make sure the set pieces are painted, that we lay out our theming and then insert the roller coaster, but design the roller coaster on the front end so that we make sure it's all going to work and fit in place. I think that makes sense. But I think the other thing that you have to worry about is all that paint. You scratch it with that piece of a roller coaster track and you're going to have to go back and paint it anyway. So it's just kind of like. That feels dangerous, I guess, is my thing. I like their thought process, though, but that that seems kind of dangerous. No, I agree. I feel like there would have to be some touch-up work done in between that would extend the the overall timeline for when you could open that attraction. Right. I need to see some uh, archival footage. If any of y'all have images out there of paint being scratched as they're bringing in pieces of the track, 
hit us up. That would be quite some archival footage to see. We all know Tony Baxter listens to this podcast. He's going to be like, oh, I've got you. Hit us up, Tony. We appreciate (laughs) it. I can't call him Tony. Mr. Baxter. Mr. Baxter. We're not big enough yet to to be on a first name basis with Imagineers. (laughs) Oh, gosh. So those are kind of the stories of the construction of our first two versions of Thunder Mountain Railroad. So the ride opened at Disneyland on September 2nd of 1979, and it opened at the Magic Kingdom on September 23rd, 1980. Now, I'm not going to go in deep on the other ones. We do have some other versions of Thunder Mountain that have opened around the world. The next version opened at Tokyo Disney on July 4th, 1987. And a big thing to note here, you're going to hear me abbreviate the name throughout the podcast just because it's easy to say and how I colloquially say it. But it is worth noting the original two are called the Big Thunder Mountain Railroad, and the Tokyo Disney version is just called Big Thunder Mountain. They dropped the railroad. Wow. And then lastly, at Disneyland Paris, they had their version open on April 12th, 1992. And this one was a really unique version because in addition to the very different theming of this attraction in comparison to some of the changes that they made to the versions here in the U.S. that we'll talk about here in a minute, this version also has the roller coaster out on an island. And so you actually board on the mainland and the roller coaster goes out to the island to do the whole Thunder Mountain thing. That's really cool. It looks very neat. And I think it would be a very fun version of that ride to go on. I've also heard the seeing the fireworks being on Thunder Mountain are incredible at Disneyland Paris. Oh, that's crazy. Those are the only versions of Thunder Mountain that are out there. But... Hong Kong does have a very similarly themed ride called Big Grizzly Mountain Runaway Minecarts, and that will come into play a little bit later on in just a little fact that I'll sprinkle in. So I wanted to mention it here that 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 is out there. But that is all of our versions of the attraction. Now, moving forward with these, we did have some renovations that we saw to the attractions here in the U.S., In January of 2013, the Disneyland attraction closed for a 14-month refurbishment, and they refurbed a lot of different things about the ride over this 14-month period. When they reopened in March of 2014, they had completely rebuilt the track. They also had some new special effects, including some projection mapping for a big dynamite explosion um, as you're going through one of the caves. And it is also worth noting I mentioned that the original little town of Rainbow Ridge was preserved from the original attraction way back when. Unfortunately, a lot of those props were built with wood at the time. And so when inspectors were kind of going through everything, there was really, really intense termite damage that Mm. was reported. So the Rainbow Ridge that you see now as the ghost town in the Thunder Mountain at Disneyland is technically not the same town that was back at the opening of Disneyland, but as they refurbed it, it's essentially an exact replica that they replaced all the wood. And you kind of get into a a ship of Theseus discussion with that. Yeah, that's exactly what I was just thinking about. So uh, depending on what side of the ship of Theseus argument you are, (laughs) that'll form your opinions on, on seeing Rainbow Ridge at Disney. Along with talking about refurbs, 
in the Magic Kingdom in 2013, they also did a lot of refurbishments, including making a lot of interactive elements to the queue, flushing out the story of this ride, including discussing a lot of history of natural disasters, of mine shaft collapses and illnesses and a big flood that you can actually see on the ride. There's like like a local floating in a bathtub in the aftermath of a flood. I think one of the funnier set pieces on that ride. But it also goes into talking about some supernatural history about residents of the town seeing some mine trains without a conductor moving along the tracks Ooh, all on their own. Spooky. Now, the biggest parts of the theming that they added in this update was they actually built some big characters that play into Thunder Mountain, specifically one individual that is relevant to the Disneyland and Disney World attractions. Matthew, is this a character that you're familiar with? Do you know who I'm talking about? Uh, I know it's probably going to hit me as soon as you say it, but I can't think of anyone off the top of my head. I will be honest, if the rules were reversed and you asked me, it would not hit me because this name did not ring a bell for me. <laughs> All right, I'm ready. Hit me with it. There is a big portrait of them in the queue for the ride. It is the founder and president of the Big Thunder Mining Company named Barnabas T. Bullion. Cricket Snope. Never mind. I lied. <laughs> it did not ring a bell. You don't know old Barney T? <laughs> Oh, so you're on a first name basis with Barney T. Got it. Okay. Oh, you're right. I need to call him Mr. Bullion. We're not on that level at Q for <laughs> Two yet. Well, Barnabas Bullion is like the central character in the themings of the attractions here in the U.S. It is kind of a funny little nod that his portrait bears a very striking resemblance to our very own Imagineer, Tony Baxter. Hmm. Peculiar. <laughs> but the biggest thing with that is essentially his company bought this whole area and was involved in the mining. And the main theming for us is that his company decided to bring tourists out to the town to ride on possessed mine trains to make a little extra money. So old Barnabas is making a buck off of all of us as we get on the ride to tour his mine caverns. There's a lot of minutia in the story of Barnabas, then I'm going to hit on some of the high points when we get to the fun facts, but that's where I'm going to, I'm going to stop our history here. And so to close out our history, Matthew, I think it's time for our official ride description from Disney. Are you ready to take a ride on Big Thunder Mountain Railroad? Choo choo, let's go. Legend has it that soon after gold was discovered here in the 1850s, eerie things began to happen. Trains would take off and race through tunnels by themselves. After you arrive at the legendary Big Thunder Mining Company, descend into an abandoned mine shaft and board your train. As you enter the cursed cavern, the engine speeds up along the rickety track. Dodge exploding dynamite and falling boulders as you swoop around turns drop into canyons and dart through the mysterious ghost town of Tumbleweed. Your rip-roaring adventure proves that some legends are true. You're sure to have a real blast. Because this here is the wildest ride in the wilderness. <laughs> Pause for applause. Pause for applause. I love it. And I just realized as I was reading that, it talks about the mysterious ghost town of Tumbleweed. That is the canon ghost town at the Disney World attraction. I've been calling it Rainbow Ridge at Disneyland because of the old ones and the 
the ghost towns have some different names, but this was the Walt Disney World description. And so the ghost town that you go through there is called Tumbleweed. Well, I think we're ready to get into some fun facts territory. Matthew, are you ready for fun? I'm always ready for fun. I've, I've had fun all the time, so the facts you've told me have been fun. Just to kind of flesh <laughs> out some of the info about this ride a little bit more, one thing that I thought was really interesting, when you look at Thunder Mountain for Disney World and Disneyland, the peaks of Thunder Mountain look a little bit different, and that's actually because they had completely different design inspiration. Bryce Canyon National Park in Utah was the inspiration for a lot of the scenery and the peaks for Disneyland, whereas the Disney World attraction was modeled after Monument Valley in Arizona. Okay. So that is why the two look different. They had different natural inspirations for their design. Makes sense. Okay. Now, one design element that both of the rides share is with the mining equipment that's around on the rides. So you know how when you're walking through the queue, there's all these old industrial machines and there's picks and shovels and different mining equipment strewn all about? Right. So I never knew this is all real equipment that was actually used in mines out in the West. Apparently, Disney Imagineers, in order to make the queue authentic, went to a bunch of like estate sales and auctions and such to acquire abandoned mining equipment from Nevada, Colorado, Minnesota, and Wyoming to give their cues a very authentic vibe. That's really cool. When you say that, it just makes me picture like guys in suits, like men in black style. But instead of just being like normal, they've got the Mickey ears on top. So they're in a full suit, sunglasses, and then they've got just Mickey ears on top. (laughs) And it's like, who are these guys? They're the Disney police. See, I picture miners with their little mining helmets, but all the little helmets have Mickey ears. (laughs) They're mining for the mouse. And it was kind of neat when I was researching this. Apparently, they don't just set them out there to rot. There are actually dedicated teams at Disney that keep an eye on the props and look to make sure that they're properly taken care of, too, so they can be there for longer for future generations to enjoy. Yeah, that's good from, like, obviously from a money perspective of keeping the props so you don't have to replace them. But from a history perspective, that's really cool. And if they ever do close the ride, you would hope that they would properly donate them and or, you know, something to that effect, because that is a part of American history. That's really cool. I didn't know that. I was really shocked to learn that as well. I never really thought about it while I was going through the queue before. I just figured it was all props manufactured by Disney at some point. So it's neat that you really are getting that exposure to history as you're going through as well. Right. Now, the ride itself gets its name from the waterfall Big Thunder at Cascade Peak, a section of the Rainbow Caverns mine train at the Disneyland attraction in the early 60s. Now, this part of the attraction was actually added under the direct supervision of Walt Disney before his passing, and the waterfall remained in that area until 1998 when it was removed due to years of water damage. But so the name actually comes from that piece of history within the Disney parks itself. That's cool. Now, we were talking about the theming of Big Thunder Mountain, and I want to get into a couple of the interesting details about that theming here. When we look at the history of the theming, I mentioned that a lot of it was kind of retroactively added to the ride around the 2013-2014 time window. 
There is an important piece of Disney history that gives us a little bit about the lore before that. Matthew, are you familiar with the Ballad of Big Thunder Mountain? I don't think I am. Apparently, they used to play it in the ride queue at different times, but it was a song that came out on a 90s Disney CD called Disneyland Forever that you can find on YouTube now, and it's a very like folksy song that sings about the history of Big Thunder Mountain. <laughs> okay. So that was the only like big lore drop that we got on Thunder Mountain until uh, 2013. <laughs> now, I talked about Barnabas T. There is another big character in the rides at Disneyland and Disney World by the name of Jason Chandler. Now, you'll see letters between Barnabas T. Bullion and Jason Chandler throughout the ride that essentially Jason is a character that built this big drill that was purchased by Barnabas. And some of their letters detail how Jason didn't agree with how Barnabas was using the drill to mine Big Thunder Mountain. And so they kind of have correspondences back and forth talking about that. Now, Jason Chandler does also have his own unique place in Disney characters lore. Matthew, is this a name that you're familiar with? Can you think of any connection outside of Big Thunder Mountain that a Jason Chandler might have? Uh, is his name on one of the gravestones at Haunted Mansion? That is a really good guess, and I'll honestly say I can't say for certain that it's not. <laughs> no idea. That is not the nod I was thinking of. Are you familiar with the Society of Explorers and Adventurers? That sounds more familiar. You can find the list of this organization at the Tropical Hideaway at Disneyland, and it's kind of an extension of Disney lore that connects a lot of big characters from different rides. So some other big names that you might be familiar with that are in the Society of Explorers and Adventurers, there is a Mr. <laughs> excuse my disrespect, a Dr. Albert Falls. Classic Dr. Falls. <laughs> we also have Henry Mystic, Harrison Hightower, and there are some other names that you might recognize from other things. But essentially, Jason Chandler is the founder for the Society of Explorers and Adventurers. And so while Barnabas T. Bullion is not himself listed as a member, there's a lot of people that think he might be like a shadow member and have connections to oh, the wow. Society of Explorers and Adventurers due to his close connection with Jason Chandler. It is also kind of fun. Apparently, Jason Chandler was originally supposed to be the founder of something called Discovery Bay which I'm not going to get into. That's going to be a lot of things. It was a big project that they ultimately cut from being in the parks, but it's kind of a funny little nod that he was supposed to loop into this whole other narrative <laughs> that just never came to be. I'm curious, though. You bring up Chandler having invented this drill. What are we supposed to use it for if he wasn't using it properly to mine? I, I, you know, I'm curious as to what he designed the drill for. <laughs> I know it doesn't matter. That's just what stuck out to me most. So I think it was meant to be a mining drill, but I think where it kind of details in the letters back and forth between them is that Thunder Mountain is supposed to be this haunted ground. And okay. there's a lot of narratives at the different versions that by mining it and taking out the gold, you're like angering these Native American gods that bring retribution on the surrounding towns. Got it. Okay. Jason Chandler was a big believer in this. And he was saying like, hey, you're really like, 
shouldn't mess with this. And Barnabas was like, but gold. Classic, classic. Okay, that track. So it wasn't that he was using the drill incorrectly. I misunderstood. It was that he was using it in the wrong places. Got it. Okay, that makes sense. He was trying to like drill a filling for his tooth. And Jason was like, (laughs) man, that's a big drill. You shouldn't be doing that. There's a lot of interesting lore there in the queue in those letters. So as you're going through the the queue, especially at Disney World, be sure to be on the lookout for all that. You can kind of piece together some more parts of that story. Now, Barnabas T. Bullion is the founder here in the States, but there is another character named Henry Ravenswood that is considered to be the founder of the big mining company at the Paris Ride. And Henry Ravenswood also has a, another connection with a attraction in that park, the Ravenswood Manor, aka Phantom Manor, or that park's version of the Haunted Mansion, Okay, where that little story loop is that him being another greedy capitalist like, uh, like Barnabas T. Bullion, trying to get all that gold, angers a mighty Native American god, the Thunderbird, who calls forth an earthquake that kills both Henry and his wife. And then from that point, you get your story at the Phantom Manor of their ghostly forms and how all that fits together. That's really cool to like think about, because obviously in like modern Disney, you have like Toy Story Land, you have Star Wars Land and all the like Avengers Campus and everything. But it's crazy to think about stuff like that, that for me, I didn't even realize that they've been doing stories told throughout these like different areas as things are connected. It's not just that the general theme of Frontierland is there. But there are actual stories at the different parks that go between the rides and stuff. And I think that's that's a really cool like piece that is subtle. And if you notice it, it's really cool, but it's not like super distracting. And you don't have to notice it for you to just have a good time. So I think that's a really cool, again, like we keep listening every week, Disney magic. Love it. Yeah, no, for sure. It's one of those neat things that Disney has those components there if you want to dig deeper and learn more about it. And it's funny that the history of Frontierland goes a lot deeper than I ever realized. There's even a lot of story between apparently Frontierland itself is one settlement and like their struggles between Rainbow Ridge and Frontierland. And there's even like some nods to history about battles between the two frontier cities and things like that. Apparently it goes really deep and there's a lot there if you're wanting to look for those Easter eggs and delve a bit deeper. That's cool. Speaking of kind of looking for those fun little nods, there are a couple of things that I wanted to point out at the Disneyland Disney World attractions that you can be on the lookout for. I want to start with our Disneyland attraction. There is a signpost at that attraction that has some arrows pointing to a few different locations with some units of distance underneath each name. This sign actually points to different versions of Thunder Mountain. There is one listed as Rainbow Ridge, the Disneyland version, that is 76 feet away, which, you know, you're right there in the queue. There is Tumbleweed, the town that we discussed in the version of the ride at Magic Kingdom, 2,496 miles away. There is Thunder Mesa, which references the Paris version, 9,258 kilometers. And we've been waiting for it. We've been waiting for it to come back in. Grizzly Gulch, which (laughs) references the Hong Kong attraction that is not Thunder Mountain, 11,743 kilometers away. What a callback. The smoking gun, as they would say. (laughs) You're probably wondering, like, hey, what about Tokyo? Why didn't they (laughs) reference the Tokyo attraction? 
the area for that attraction known as Stillwater Junction is mentioned in a different way. It's at a newspaper at the Paris location in an advertisement for steamboat trips that that newspaper clipping references all five attractions. Okay. So you kind of have those neat little nods in the attractions themselves, linking up the different locations, kind of like how they do at um, Space Mountain, listing all the different spaceports on the globe. A couple other things to look out for. On the second floor of the Gold Dust Saloon, if you ride this attraction at night, look for some lights to turn on on the second floor, and you might see some signs of a little party going on up above the Gold Dust Saloon that you can't see during the day. On the Disneyland ride, the coolest animatronic ever, there's a little goat holding a stick of dynamite. (laughs) He's ready to go. I mean... You're never going to find a cooler goat. He's even got his own Facebook page. Oh, gosh. He's made it. (laughs) (laughs) While we're talking about dynamite, Matthew, you did mention dynamite crates in your episode on the Jungle Cruise, talking about some crates of dynamite from Lightem and Hide Explosives. So those are on the Jungle Cruise. This is a reference to this company that is associated with Thunder Mountain. And you can also find some stacks of these crates on the Walt Disney World Railroad outside of Frontierland Station. Heck yeah. To close us out of the fun facts, I got a couple of big heavy hitters. I don't know if I can take any more, but I'm re- <laughs> I, I guess I'm ready. Now, this one is really outside of the realm of things that we normally talk about. And for those of y'all listening to the podcast, you may not know, outside of my Disney and theme park fandom, Out there in the real world, I work as a physician, and there actually is a medical tie-in to Big Thunder Mountain. Now, Matthew, I would ask you what this medical tie-in could be, but I believe you've already heard a little bit about this story. Yeah, so if you ride Big Thunder Mountain, you're going to break both of your knees. That's it, right? (laughs) That's it, a a medical marvel. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to steal your thunder. Hey, too much. Um, But I will say what I've heard is that if you happen to have kidney stones, that this is the ride to go on to get rid of them. So I'll let you explain the science behind it, because all I know is that kidney stones go away. That's all I got. (laughs) So that was how I stumbled across this as well as hearing about that little fact. And I was like, oh, like this is probably some anecdotal, funny little myth. Right. Just a wives tale. And then I came across a medical research paper published in October of 2016 in the Journal of American Osteopathic Medicine, written by Dr. David Wartinger. And the paper is titled Validation of a Functional Pilocalcial Renal Model for the Evaluation of Renal Calculi Passage While Riding a Roller Coaster. Really rolls off the tongue, (laughs) really. uh... Classic scientific document. (laughs) Classic. We love it. Essentially, this doctor had the idea for this paper after he had a couple of patients in his clinic that came in saying that they passed kidney stones after riding a roller coaster. And one patient claimed that this happened on three separate occasions. And so he and his team thought, well, is there any therapeutic value to this? Can this be scientifically proven? So what they did is they made a 3D model of a kidney and rode 
Big Thunder Mountain with the explicit permission of Disney to ride for scientific testing, which I thought was neat <laughs> that they had that officially sanctioned permission. Yeah, they really just did all this. Yeah. All right. I'll let you continue. <laughs> and they were testing a couple of different parameters, including the location of the kidney stone in the model of the kidney and also how sitting on different parts of the roller coaster affected the test. So they did this 20 different times, uh, noted that the stone was passed nearly 70% of the time, and that it absolutely does matter where you sit. If you sit on the back seats of this attraction, you are more likely to pass a kidney stone. You're going to get that whip. (laughs) The other thing that I thought was wild about this is, you know, you could think, all right, like you ride a roller coaster, it's rough, it's jostling things around, maybe it's going to propel a kidney stone out. Matthew, this seems to be unique to Big Thunder Mountain Railroad. They tried to do trials on Space Mountain, and they tried trials on Rock and Roller Coaster without the same results. It's because it's rough. That ride (laughs) is rough, man. And that is what does it. But man, if it works, it works. That's your therapy. You got a kidney stone, pop in that backseat of Thunder Mountain, assuming that you, you know, don't also have a heart condition or something else that prevents you from riding. And uh, maybe it'll help you pass that kidney stone. Oh man, if you're pregnant, have a heart condition and a kidney stone, you're just in trouble. I would would not ride. And also, please do not take this as officially sanctioned medical advice. Nope. This was seen in, in this paper. That is as far as it was proven in those studies. And also, I'm a doctor for children, not for adults. So- Take that in mind. (laughs) The two last fun facts I have are about Thunder Mountain in the realm of cinema. The first one, the sounds of Thunder Mountain as the cart is moving along the tracks. That unique sound is actually pulled and used in a very well-known film. Can you think of a movie where there are mine carts heavily involved they might have pulled some sounds from big thunder mountain all right answer me is it animated or is it live action it is live action it's a live action movie with mine carts i'll give you another hint too this is in a property that at the time was not owned by disney but is now owned by disney hmm got it okay i know exactly what it was iron man one When he's building the suit of armor in the cave with a box of scraps. And they're bringing in the mine carts to bring him the supply. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. No, sorry. Nothing's ringing a bell. What you got? So it is another big property, not the MCU. We are talking about the world of Indiana Jones. Oh, classic. Okay. In the second Indiana Jones movie, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, they have that whole sequence where they are riding in the minecarts, and a lot of those sound effects come from Big Thunder Mountain. Oh, that's cool. And then the last one I have here, we may be getting a movie based around Big Thunder Mountain. It has not happened yet, but we know this is something that's happened with other attractions, right? You have like your Haunted Mansion, you have your Pirates of the Caribbean, so on and so forth. And Hawkeye directors, Bert and Bertie, have reportedly already been signed on to direct this film as of August of 2022. And so we don't have any other details about the plot. We don't have any other details about timeline of when this might come out. But it is apparently something that is in the works. And Matthew, our viewers can't uh, see your facial expressions. What are your thoughts about this? They're going to hire The Rock to play the mountain. 
The Rock is going to play Big Thunder Mountain. The Rock is the big rock. <laughs> no, but, you know, I'm I'm all for it. Well, let's give it a try. Again, it's what you listened earlier. It's like the story of Big Thunder Mountain is not really why people go on it. It's really like subtle and everything. So like they've got room to do something with it. I'm curious to see what they're doing with it. I would definitely watch it. You know, I bet people are the same way about Jungle Cruise. People are the same way about Haunted Mansion. And both of those movies were amazing in their own special way. So I think, you know, there's potential there. It'll just see, you know, what the story is, or is it really just the name Big Thunder tied to it sort of thing? Curious. I just think it's funny because you have ones like Haunted Mansion that, you know, there are your diehard Eddie Murphy fans out there that love the Haunted Mansion movie, and they are doing a reboot of the Haunted Mansion movie now. Right. But, you know, generally doesn't have a whole lot of notoriety. And then you have your Pirates of the Caribbean that became such a huge multi-million dollar success story that who knows, maybe old Barnabas T. Bullion hitting the big screen is going to bring in the big bucks. I think that's definitely what they would want is to do that. And then just like they did with Pirates of the uh, Caribbean, go back and refurb the ride too. you know, if you build a huge story, you've got these characters, this lore you build out, then you go back and put that in the ride and then it just... A hundred years from now, no one will remember that the ride came before the movie, just like we do with Pirates of the Caribbean and Haunted Mansion. So that, you know, I'm I'm all for it. Good luck. Don't think I didn't notice that you almost said Caribbean there. Look, man. Okay, I'm so sorry. (laughs) (laughs) We know where your true loyalties lie. Pirates of the Tiki Room. I'll say that. How about that? (laughs) What a crossover. What a crossover. All right, Matthew. Well, that's all the fun facts I have. As we do, I would like to close us out with a couple hidden Mickeys for this attraction. There's not a whole lot to go over here, but there are a couple of interesting hidden ones on this attraction. When you are on the ride at Magic Kingdom and you are going through the cavern at the beginning of the ride, you'll need to look in the right side of the cavern And as you're looking towards the right side of the tracks, it's in the left side of that big room. Look at the stalagmites on the floor of the cavern, and you should be able to see three of them grouped together to form the face of a Mickey. And this is apparently a true sanctioned hidden Mickey from what I was able to find. Even though it's just three things clumped together, this does appear to be intentional. Classic. And then as you go through the ride, you don't see your next hidden Mickey until the very end. On your railroad tracks, pulling in, getting close to the station to get off the ride, look on the right, and on the ground, you'll see three cogwheel gears that are set up to be a hidden Mickey. It is also worth noting there is another cogwheel hidden Mickey that is on the Disneyland version of this attraction, but these two are here at Magic Kingdom. Cogs in a machine, man. Now, the one kind of spicy, interesting other one. We have talked about some other hidden Disney characters on rides before, and I've got a unique one that we haven't talked about before. After you exit the ride, when you are leaving the closing queue, there is a hidden Tinkerbell. Oh, I was hoping you were going to say Donald. No, no Donald yet. Maybe we'll come across a Donald in the in the future. But this one is another big Disney mascot, Tinkerbell. As you're leaving the attraction and you take the exit closest to the standby line entrance, if you look on the left, there is a big reddish rock 
that has an indentation in it that is the appearance of a side profile of Tinkerbell, just beyond the fence and in between two metal carts. This is one that is very difficult to describe in an audio-only podcast. (laughs) This is a very well-known one, though, so if you Google it, you should be able to find a clear picture. That's www.google.com. Thank you for putting in that URL, Matthew. That's a a tricky one to find. They, They keep that behind a lot of layers. And with that, I think all that's left is to discuss our ride tips for this ride. Before I get into my ride tips, Matthew, anything that you have about Thunder Mountain or any ride tips that you want to share for our listeners? Yeah, so like I said uh, throughout the episode, uh, I do love this ride. Not my favorite because it is rough and the cars are a little bit rough on folks that are on the taller side. But I will say that it's still a must ride for me at least once per trip when I'm going down to Disney. I will say if you get a chance to ride it during the day and also to ride it at night, because like you said, there are the little like lights and everything. But I think the way that they have the mountain and the track lit up at night, it's just extra special. When you start going through also in the dark, adding the dark layers to it, the ride feels faster. So if you want more of the speed side, I'd say sit in the front. If you want more of the whip as you're going from side to side, sit in the back. Other than that, I would say just enjoy yourself and let yourself go. It's a good ride. It's a fun roller coaster. One very important addition, if you have a kidney stone and potentially want to dislodge that kidney stone, you might also want to sit in the rear seat. Exactly. Just another benefit to the rear seat of this attraction. No, Matthew, I 100% agree. My main ride tip was consider riding at night because you get to see that Easter egg of the gold dust saloon being lit up and also seeing the fireworks. It's a different experience, and if you have the chance, this is a fun one to be able to do that. The only other thought I had about this one is just the generic one that we talk about for a lot of other rides. Consider taking the left path when the queue splits. You'll probably have a shorter wait, as a lot of people tend to take the right path. For this ride in particular, it really stands out to me because the last time I rode this attraction, people kept filing to the right, and the left was wide open. Wow. And we walked to the left, and took a good 10 minutes off of our wait. Very strange, very extreme example, but it happens. It is something that happens. And so consider taking the left path to to board your mind train. Well, that queue went faster than expected. We hope you enjoyed the episode and learned something new about this wonderful ride. As always, we'd love to hear your experiences with the attraction or any fun facts that you have. Feel free to join our Discord server and join the conversation or shout at us on Twitter or Instagram at Q for two. That's Q-U-E-U-E underscore F-O-R underscore T-W-O. You can also drop a comment on our YouTube channel. All those links can be found in the episode description below. Now, go catch that ride and we'll see you in the next Q for two. Because this here's the wildest ride in the wilderness.